This message first aired on the radio on June 12, 2003. I'm reminded again today in, in rather uh, drastic ways that none of the hopes that we can put uh, in this world uh, amount to anything lasting, but that our hope is in Christ. Those of us who are rejoicing in our circumstances today uh, and the abundance of the things that we have ought to uh, pay stricter heed to the Scripture and take a looser hold because the world is passing in the way and the fashion of it and everything you can lay your eyes on is passing and only the Word of God remains. So we are taking up today that which will remain. We're taking up that which is eternal and we can even speak with the uh, Apostle John that through the eyes of our faith that which our eyes have seen and that which our Hands have handled uh, the word of life. Uh, we can we can we can really relate to him in that regard when the eyes of our understanding are enlightened, and uh, that's part of the prayer that the apostle Paul had for the believers. Uh, we're taking up the subject of uh, the three resurrections. We uh, are uh, we had a little hiatus yesterday as we spoke to some. Uh, Christians uh, uh, who um, who are trying to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in uh, in and around uh, Nairobi, Kenya, and uh, in the outskirts of Nairobi, in the in the broad precincts of that uh, of that of that of that very large city. And uh, but we're back now to our theme of the three resurrections, and we're on the third resurrection, which is the one most misunderstood by Christians. Let me say that you can be a Christian and not have detailed understanding of these uh, resurrections, and that's why it's for, uh, for for the believer to be taught about them. Every Christian believes in the resurrection of the dead. After all, you can't be a Christian if you don't believe in the literal, physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his literal, physical return to the earth. Therefore, I'm a little surprised at the tests that we use to discover if someone is a Christian, and or the test, maybe I could put it this way, the tests which are formulated to see if someone is a Christian or not. Uh, for example, we have a phraseology that I, I detest, wherein someone will say, John Malone professes to be a Christian. Well, that's all we can do. Uh, is professed to be a Christian. I cannot prove to you I'm a Christian. I can do nothing other than to say I'm a Christian, which is my profession. Uh, I, I am saved, or I profess to be saved. That's the same statement. If 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 I say I am I am saved, I am a Christian. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, I profess to do all of those things. Uh, it's interesting. We could we could further complicate our our everyday speech by preceding every statement we make with "according to me," so that I could say, "According to me, I'm not feeling the best today," or "According to me, it's a little wet outside." But we can drop that and understand that everything I say is according to me, and we can understand that in the matters of faith, everything I say is my profession. So there are no such things as distinction. As there's no such thing. It's an artificial distinction to distinguish between a professor and a possessor. All Christians are mere professors. After all, 
Our salvation is not something we've earned or attained or won. It is something that's been given to us, and we rest by faith in the works of another concerning it. And so uh, I I find it's interesting that language uh, and, and the tests of whether someone's a Christian or not are so interesting. Others would have to gauge the things that you say. So they would ask you, for example, have you received Jesus Christ into your heart? I don't actually know what that means. I merely received Jesus Christ. I didn't receive him into my heart. I don't know if you're talking physiology. I don't know if uh, if you're talking about some kind of little six-inch Jesus that I have invited. Uh, I, I, I don't need to invite the Lord Jesus Christ to do anything. After all, he's the one who invites me. He said, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so uh, he's the inviter, I'm the invited. And so I don't know what it means to invite Jesus into your heart. I don't know what it means to invite Jesus into my life. He's the author of life. In him I live and move and have my being. So I, I also don't know what it is to invite him into my life. I don't know what it means to to make a decision for Christ in the sense of being saved. There is a, a simple formulation for whether a person is, of, of how a person gets saved, and there's also a little more complicated, but a simpler uh, uh, formulation to to see if someone is a child of God. The the simple formulation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That That's how to be saved, and it's a very simple statement. Uh, that doesn't mean you can decide to do it, but uh, but you must believe to be saved, and God calls all men everywhere to believe uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He no longer winks at ignorance. As for testing whether someone or not is a Christian, the Bible formulation, 1 John, 2 John, is to see if someone professes the physical coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first place, that Jesus Christ is God Almighty come in the flesh, and in the second place, that he's coming again also in a body, physically, to the earth. So, has he come in the flesh? Was he incarnate? Was he God incarnate through Mary? And I submit to you that that means that he had to be born of a virgin. And secondly, is he coming again in the flesh? And the implication of that, of course, is that he, that his body, which died, also rose again from the dead, so that it is able, so that he is able in his body to return. Well, I clear those those uh, 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 simple matters, partly because they are an aggravation to me, and partly because the subject that we're taking up today is beyond that. It's a little more detailed than that. It's more complicated than that. And to remind us that all Christians, therefore, must believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now, that doesn't mean that we all believe or have even paid attention to the fact that there is the resurrection from the dead or out from the dead. We realize the Lord Jesus Christ has risen out from the dead, but maybe we don't realize that it was a puzzlement to the apostles, as we found in Mark chapter 9, and maybe we don't realize that that turn of phrase is an important one the difference between the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection out from. But having now, now, now having observed and knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ rose out from the dead, we can see that there is a distinction within the concept of standing up out of the dead. 
So we now go on to the third uh, concept of resurrection, or what I call the third resurrection, uh, uh, the third of three resurrections, uh, which is found in the book of Philippians. Book of Philippians, a correcting epistle. But in Philippians 3.11, the Apostle Paul talks about the out-resurrection, out from the dead, or the outstanding out from the dead. Uh, the standing up out from those standing up from the dead. And this is the thing he desired to attain. This is the thing he did. He realized he did not yet have. This is that which attached to his pleasing the Lord. And this also is what he discuss, what he was referring to and inferring in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he talked about a race and that all run, yet all, not all receive the prize. So our series on the gift and the prize led us to make those distinctions between God's gift and God's prize. And our series here on the three resurrections try to point out to us when the prize occurs and on what basis it comes, and also then to give us more detailed scriptures so that our faith would be built up. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. We look today at the top of our discussion of, 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 this, of this outstanding resurrection or the, the out-resurrection out from the dead, the, that which the apostle hoped to achieve. Uh, we look at Second Timothy, and we look at the second uh, chapter of Second Timothy, and we find uh, uh, that he takes up again a theme very similar to what he took up in First Corinthians nine with the Corinthians. This a bit more intimate, this a bit more personal, being written to one individual, and uh, a, a bit more developed. And here's what he said to Timothy. Second Timothy 2, verse 1, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now I'll just pause for a minute and point out that this, this, this is the swan song or the final epistle written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing it to uh, one who is going to carry on his uh, legacy. He is writing to one who is going to carry on the faith and reproduce it in others. And his admonition is personally to Timothy rather than to Timothy as leader of a church, uh, though, though no, no question that in my mind that Timothy was leading in any church that he was in, certainly teaching in it and so forth. But he said, The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And, of course, we see the three generations of, or four generations of men. We see Paul, who had taught Timothy, and now he's exhorting Timothy, teach to uh, uh, other men who are also able to teach to other men. And if you'll think about it, that's four generations. And then, and then he's, and by the way, not just any men, but faithful men. That means men who are tested, men who are tried. I think sometimes we, we try to move men along too quickly. It's a, it's a very common trait. It was a warning that Paul had given to Timothy uh, in First Timothy, where he said, Lay hands on no man suddenly, be not partaker of other men's sins. Uh, the one thing to be avoided, it's especially, by the way, something that a preacher should avoid, 
is to lay hands suddenly on a man. It, it can be the worst thing both for the one who lays hands suddenly on, who becomes a participator or a partaker of that other man's sins, but certainly someone who has had hands laid on them will find themselves in grievous sin. And so no one is, is done any service by being advanced too rapidly in the ministry of God's Word. I uh, lamented here recently that I had been uh, working with uh, uh, a leading man that, that actually called called a senior pastor in a very large uh, Baptist church overseas, and I had been uh, talking to him about very, very many things over the course of years, and the most recent thing I talked to him about was that I believed he had placed an unqual- helped pu- push along and place an unqualified man uh, to lead a church. Only um, yesterday to learn that that man had lost his marriage, had gone into disgrace, and um, really had lost any prospects of continuing the ministry, at least for now. And so... Uh, the apostle tells Timothy, commit truth, not merely teach, but commit truth or commit what you have learned from me to faithful men who have the ability to teach others also. And then he said, so that's the first advice, then he says, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he gives the example. He says, no man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Now, this is a, an example of a soldier. And he says that uh, the soldier uh, ha- actually forsakes all normal matters of life, all usual matters of life, so that he can conduct himself in warfare. The man that wars entangles himself or trips himself up with the affairs of this life that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. And, uh, of course, that uh, what we do when we put soldiers in the field is we remove all those concerns that they have for everyday life. They, their meals are prepared, are handed to the, either handed to them already prepared or they're prepared for them. They just show up. Their, their, their housing is all taken care of. They don't have to worry about where they're going to get their ammunition, where they're going to get their equipment. All of these things are just handled for them so that they can stay focused on the orders that they're given and the warfare that they're conducting or or the warfare that they're strategizing. And so that's a, one example in saying he, he's telling Timothy, on in one sense, you're going to be a soldier. And there is a spiritual war. Uh, every day, uh, as Christians, we need to remind ourselves that that there's a war going on and that we're in it whether we like it or not whether we're going to fight or not there's a war going on the lord jesus christ told us there's enough evil or enough enough um uh trouble for today don't worry about uh, the future so much don't worry about tomorrow you've got enough evil today there's enough opportunity for you to sin today that you need to stay focused and concentrated and spiritually aware of all those things that are going on because uh, evil is always present. And then, of course, he also tells us to work while it is yet day, for there's a night coming when no man can work, so he gives us a sense of urgency. He gives us a sense of urgency. He gives us a clear understanding that evil is there. The apostles teach us that Satan roams about as a roaring lion trying to devour us. 
that we are told in Ephesians that there's a war going on against wicked spirits in heavenly places, that which means we have sufficient challenge. And God has arranged all of this for us. God has placed us sovereignly in this. This is for our good and our benefit and for our great joy because the Lord has enabled us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to conquer and overcome uh, our heavenly adversaries so that at the right time, at the judgment seat of Christ, which is coincident uh, uh, in within a certain time frame, coincident with the time that Satan is cast out of the heavens and into the earth, along, I believe, with all of those angels that follow him. And at that time, the Lord Jesus Christ, in completion of the judgment seat of Christ, will qualify a heavenly people to reign in the heavens in their stead. Uh, I look forward to the day that the Lord has made, that seventh day, that 7,000th year, that seventh set, seventh set of a thousand years, because as one of God's heavenly people, I believe that I can qualify today to rule and reign with him from the heavens, in the heavens, uh, during that thousand-year time. And so uh, an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God can be ministered unto me. I'll I'll be taking more of that up anon, but let's continue looking here at 2 Timothy chapter 2. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet he is not crowned except he strive lawfully. Now here, again, uh, is the example of a race and an example of a man who, an athlete, really. This is an athlete. A man who strives for masteries is an athlete. And a different aspect is taken than than the one who's running in 1 Corinthians. That aspect is that he he doesn't run as if he's practicing, and he he strives with all of his might, and he stays focused on it. This one says the man is not crowned, except he strive lawfully. And it's a little bit different idea here. Now it's not merely the effort that needs to be put forward, that taken up in 1 Corinthians 9, but here it is the concentration, focus, and the carefulness that is needed. So it's not enough to be zealous in the Christian life. And and I trust uh, you may have had early days of zeal without knowledge in your Christian life, or you know others, in, especially in early days, that have great zeal but no knowledge. It's, it's, it's an unhappy and an unfortunate circumstance because God would add to our faith knowledge and to knowledge experience so that we wouldn't remain careless in the Christian life. So the Christian life is to be circumspect, that means to be looking all around in a circle, Cir- circum being the being the uh, uh, form of a uh, word that will tell us about this, for the word where we get circumference of a circle or all around the edge. So we'll walk circumspectly, looking all around. That's why we're, we're, we're told to walk. And here he says, if a man strive for the masteries, he will not get his crown if he breaks the rules. And so... Uh, now he gives that warning to Timothy also. Then he says, the husbandman that labors must be first partaker of the fruits. Uh, he now talks about the the agricultural worker, and all three of these examples, that, that and, and here he has to be partaker of his fruits, he has to wait, and he has to see his own fruit. Uh, this is all admonition to Timothy. And then he says, consider what I say, and the Lord give the understanding in all things. Now, in the following section, he's going to say something quite remarkable, and we do very well to pay attention to it, because he's telling us what God will do and what God will not do. 
And if we'll pay attention to this next passage, which is coming up in just a minute, right after the break, I'll take it up. If you will now turn your attention to uh, verse 8 of 2 Timothy 2, or if you just care to listen to it, I read it. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Now it's interesting here that, that the apostle talks about the gospel as something wherein he suffers trouble. That is to say, he has bad sympathy, really. The word is kakopatheo, bad sympathy. Uh, in other words, he has the same bad things visited to him, just just as he's telling Timothy to do up in verse 3 of Second Timothy, when he says, if thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier, he's saying, suffer bad things like good soldiers do. I, as I watched the uh, goal, as I watched the uh, Iraq War on television, and uh, that's a puzzlement, isn't it? Just to watch a war on TV, and 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 the war would seem to be organized well around uh, television watching. Uh, amazingly, uh, that and that that's something. Uh, you could see that soldiers had to uh, endure certain uh, evil things. Now, the Iraqi soldiers seemed to endure more evil than, than the American soldiers insofar as they suffered, uh, you know, several, several high-caliber, uh, high-velocity rounds into their chest and so forth. But uh, all soldiers suffered uh, uh, evil things. They suffered no sleep. They suffered uh, lack of food. They suffered lack of water uh, and other things. Here the apostle points out that the gospel for him was something wherein, of course, he rejoiced in it, but he was rejoicing while he was suffering evil things. There is a uh, form of teaching that's uh, extant, and it's it's quite popular. It's it's something that when your ears itch, you can scratch them with this teaching. If you you get an itching ear, you can scratch it with this teaching, and that is that the Christian life somehow is going to bring you an abundant worldly life, that the abundant life is the abundance that this world offers. Nothing could be further from the truth, nothing is further from the experience of the apostle, and nothing is further from the teaching of the apostle. Our Lord Jesus Christ said the, 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 the birds have their nests, the foxes have holes, the birds have their nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He suffered evil. The apostle Paul talks about, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised out from the dead. That's what he says. Verse 8, according to my gospel, my good news, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer. But the word of God unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Now let me tell you, the apostle was bound up in jail, but the word of God was not bound up in jail. The apostle suffered evil and trouble, but the Word of God suffers no evil and trouble. The Word of God is still free, and it's it's a wonderful thing. Here he said that he was even regarded as an evildoer, a malefactor. We ought to worry about men speaking well of us. That that, that This world uh, doesn't know um, what good is, 
And so when all men speak well of you, the Scripture tells us we should be concerned about it. Beware when all speak, men speak well of you, because that's the way they talk about false prophets. You want to know a false prophet? You want to, today we don't have false prophets. We have false teachers. You want to know a false teacher? It's that guy that everybody talks real well about. And uh, that's, that's one way to tell. And he says, verse 10, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And here he's talking about not mere salvation, but salvation with glory. And uh, now he introduces this this uh, phrase, this these three verses, which if 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 we'll read them and we'll understand them and we'll pay attention to them, we'll be greatly helped in our Christian lives. And here they are, verses ten, eleven, and twelve. Uh, excuse me, verses 11, 12, and 13 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Literally, it says this, if we co-die, we co-live. And uh, that is a fact for all Christians. We are in, in that Christ has died for, in our place for our sins by faith, we have died with him, and, and therefore we will also live with him. That is the vicarious death and resurrection of the Lord, and it is a certainty that if we received Christ as Savior and therefore died with him, we will also live with him. Verse 12, if we suffer, we shall also reign. That is to say, if we co-suffer, we will also co-reign. Now, this word, uh, this word suffer is the exact same word as endure, what Paul says he is doing. Verse, verse 10, he said, Therefore I endure all things. And what things is he talking about? He's talking about suffering trouble for the gospel, being regarded as an evildoer, even being thrown in prison, which he is in uh, at this time uh, of writing. And, and he said, I, Therefore I endure. That's the word. Now it says, if we suffer with him. That is, if we endure with him. The translators of the King James Bible put in the word suffer because they realize uh, of course, the word suffer does mean endure, but they put that word in because it includes uh, the difficulties and troubles of the Christian life in, in identifying with the Lord Jesus. If we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. Now, that's a very simple statement, and uh, it takes a great theologian to make it complicated, but it says if we suffer together, we will reign together. Let me tell you, friends, it's this simple. If you, if you endure with Christ, if you endure the rejection that this world has, if you identify with him and endure with him and, and, and are treated as he was, as he'll arrange for you in the faith, you will reign with him. If you don't, you won't. And that's a fact. Now it says in verse 13, And if we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. <clears throat> Excuse me, I skipped this, this phrase. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. Now let me tell you something. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Whoever confesses me before men, I'll confess before my Father in heaven. Who denies me before men, I'll deny before my Father in heaven. It is possible for the believer to deny the Lord. Some say it's not possible. Well, Peter's a believer. Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ. 
it is it is not only is it possible for believers to deny the Lord, but we have experience denying the Lord. You be honest with yourself, and you tell yourself whether or not you have ever denied the Lord, either in works or in private private failure to say something or privately saying that which you ought not to have said, which is a denial of the Lord. We do this thing, and the Lord tells us if we deny him, he'll deny us because there's a day coming. Today is the day where we speak, where as Christians we speak for the Lord in his absence. Tomorrow is the day when we rendezvous with him at the judgment seat of Christ, and we desire him to speak for us in his presence. And and so if here's effectively what the Lord is saying, if you will if you will confess me before men in my absence, I will confess you before my Father when you're in my presence, and and that's at the judgment seat of Christ where we want to hear the Lord say something like this: "Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy master." That is the confession. Uh, that is the is the confession we want to hear from him. But if we fail to confess him here today, if we deny him while we're on the earth, he will deny us that accolade in that day, and we'll be ashamed. And now it says this, if we believe not, it is possible, it is possible to apostatize or to go away from the faith. I have known not so many, but I've known enough men who have left the faith who now deny the faith, who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and who have denied the faith. And you may say, well, they were never saved. It's not true. They are, they were saved. They are saved. They believed, but they did not abide. They did not abide faithful. They have gone into unbelief. So the Scripture does not say, if we go into unbelief, he now rejects us. In fact, it says, if we believe not, Yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. Now let me just say this. For the Lord Jesus Christ to reject you, having received his gift, he would have to deny himself because he would have to deny his own work in your behalf and his own program of salvation. So he won't go that far, even though you may go into unbelief. Yet the Lord Jesus Christ abides faithful, he'll not deny himself, and he will sustain that marvelous work uh, that he did for the believer. I don't say they have a pleasant judgment seat. They don't have a pleasant experience at the... We will not have a pleasant experience at the judgment seat of Christ if we go into denial of the Lord publicly, if we go into unbelief, but we will have eternal life. After all, that's why we're there. Now, there's a couple of other scriptures that are parallel with uh, this and, and that help us. Uh, to to better understand this, and one of them came up in a study I did two days ago, and there uh, uh, there's some question about it, so we'll we'll turn to it and look at it a little bit, and that's in James chapter one, where we have an interesting uh, phrase uh, stated in that section that uh, I think is often uh, misunderstood, and so we'll look at verse twelve of James chapter one, and uh, we see this. Uh, this actually it's supposed to be an encouragement to us, but if misunderstood, it can be uh, no help to us whatsoever. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them 
that love him. Now, uh, this uh, I, 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 I stated this, uh, what I believe this uh, scripture meant and uh, the, the time frames that are in it, uh, because we we hope that we understand the time frames of scripture because we have an outline and we know how to place things uh, well when we read them. But it says here, happy is the man that endures temptation. Now, if you know about temptation, and I trust you have enough reflection of your life to know something about temptation, then then you can realize that that blessed or hap- that is not happy, it is it is not enjoyable to endure temptation. Uh, the, the the testings that come along for us are not pleasant; they're the opposite of sin. Uh, sin is pleasant. You know, I, sometimes, sometimes people want to tell uh, uh, us that sin isn't pleasant anymore. I've heard people tell me that since they've become Christians, they no longer have any pleasure in sin. Well, maybe I can understand what they mean, but, but the Bible teaches that sin is pleasurable, but just for a short time. And then afterwards, it, it reaps this horrible destruction on us and our conscience and, and, and the consequences thereof. So I can understand it if you take a certain long view of sin and you say, yeah, it's really not pleasant at all because look what it does. That part I understand. But if you say it's not pleasurable at all, you mistake what sin is. Sin is very is short-term pleasure and long-term, uh, long, long-term disaster. It's short-term pleasure, long-term disaster. Temptation is just the opposite. It is short-term discomfort and it is long-term pleasure and peace. So, or we might even say long-term blessing and happiness. So when this scripture says, blessed is the man that endures temptation, we have to think about, well, when is he blessed? Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. Well, some mistake this and say because when he's tempted he receives the crown of life and they see the word trial because temptation is a trial and they see this word trial and uh, uh, this word uh, and the word for temptation as the exact same time uh, and the exact same test but that's not true there is a crown of life offered to every single Christian and there are there can be more than one crown of life offered to, to more than one crown offered to every Christian. There are there are several crowns. We maybe sometime we'll take up a series on the five crowns that are offered to the Christian. This is one of the crowns. This is a crown of life, and uh, this is uh, uh, offered to the one who endures temptation. Now that's available to every Christian because temptation comes to all of us. And we know that elsewhere it tells us if we resist the devil, he'll flee from us. And, uh, of course, the devil given as a, as a, he is a person, but they're, they're referenced as his system of things. Uh, we are, we are not tempted by God. We are tempted by the evil one and his minions. We are tempted, uh, uh, by our own, uh, uh, we are, we are tempted and then we have an answer to temptation, which are our own lusts that draw us away from God. And brings and and we go, it takes us into sin. That's the old nature. The old nature becomes tempted. The new nature is not tempted with sin. The new nature now, if getting ascendancy, will will allow the 
uh, will allow us to endure temptation without falling prey to it. Temptation is not sin, but it is unpleasant to endure temptation. It is more pleasurable in the short term to just give in to temptation and to indulge ourselves. But it is is unpleasant to endure temptation. However, later, when the man who endures temptation is tested or tried, when he's tried, when he's put on trial, when he is put when it is when it is when the lord jesus christ examines whether or not to approve that man if he endures temptation he will receive the crown of life now the lord offers these great rewards to us so that we'll think about them and they will help motivate us through this time next time you're tempted to sin and and you have enough reflection maybe the lord jesus maybe the holy ghost will bring to your recollection this scripture when he is tried he will receive the crown of life that's a later time you endure the temptation for a short time you resist the temptation that's before you the devil will flee from you the temptation will end you'll have one consistently doing that and when you're tried you will hear that great phrase well done thou good and faithful servant enter into the joy of thy master and you will receive in addition a crown of life and what's a crown for well some say a crown is to throw down at the lord's feet that's a misinterpretation of scripture a crown is angels throw their crowns down at the lord's feet somebody's going to collect those crowns out and hand them out to men a crown is not personally i i don't like to wear uh, hats and i i think a crown probably is uncomfortable I'm not after the beauty of the thing or the wearing of the thing. I'm after the implication of the thing to rule and reign with our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to look again, finally, here in this subject, and we're talking about the, the, the third resurrection, the one that the Apostle Paul yet hoped for as he, as he lived. He knew he, had, he knew he was in the Lord's resurrection out from the dead, but he desired that he would attain to the out-resurrection out from the dead or to be outstanding in the resurrection from the dead. And, and I've, uh, hopefully I've shown you that that uh, has to do with the judgment seat of Christ where we'll receive uh, uh, either good or bad for the things that we've done in the body. And uh, we've taken up today 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 and following, and we've taken up Uh, James chapter 1 and verse 12. And now we're going to take up a passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, a very difficult uh, passage, but a very wonderful one. Uh, One thing I can tell you about Romans 8 is that it it, it follows directly after Romans chapter 7, and that follows directly after Romans chapter, uh, chapter 6, and there are really good reasons for that. And maybe at a different time we'll take up those two chapters Uh, But to summarize uh, briefly, I'll tell you that Romans 6 teaches us uh, about the vicarious death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and how it is that we have eternal life through his merits. And then Romans 7 tells us about the problems we have as Christians. And and, uh, I often tell people, well, here's, here's a little capsule of Christian experience. The first thing we, 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 we understand is, I'm a sinner, and that makes us a bit sorrowful. And we have, we have maybe the the problem of of uh, the consequences of our sins 
uh, coming upon our mind and breaking on our mind as we are convicted by the Holy Ghost concerning uh, righteousness and our lack thereof. And so we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he gives to us a new nature, and he forgives us all our sins, and that's really done, and we really experience we experience the forgiveness of sins, and he he uh, now resides in our hearts by faith, and we are given the, the, the new nature, which is the deposit of our future resurrection body, and then our sorrow is turned to joy, and we're really happy that that we're Christians, and we, we say, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, that's wonderful, and then we find out uh, this other uh, news, uh, we say, oh my, we get even more excited, there are other Christians, and we ha- our new nature uh, embraces our fellow believers, and then we begin to be joyful about that, and as our understanding matures, we begin to find out, uh-oh, these other people are still sinners. And we begin to be perhaps a little sorry about that, and then we go, oh no, I also am a sinner still, what will happen for me? And that's Romans chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And then the answer to that is uh, I, verse 25 of Romans 7, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who will deliver you from the body of this death. Now, as we look at Romans chapter 8, uh, among other things, we find uh, some aspects of our new nature, how it is, for example, uh, that verse 14 for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And we now have uh, some maturity spoken of. You, uh, you are a, a son of God. It doesn't say child of God. It says sons of God if you're led by the Spirit of God. And, uh, and then it says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's in verse 16. So we have a witness in ourselves. The Christian does have an internal witness. They can't really be talked out of being a Christian. They can talk out. They can be ta- a Christian can be talked out of and wrongly taught about the blessedness of his salvation, the security of his salvation. But he can't be talked out of of the fact that he is a child of God because every Christian has the internal witness of the Holy Ghost that he is the child of God. Then we have this puzzling verse. Well, it's not really a puzzling verse, but we have this verse to to discern and to take apart and to uh, appreciate the excellence of, which is, and if children, then heirs. So let me read verse 16 and 17 and 18, and then I'll come back to ver- and focus in on verse 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ... If so be that we suffer, there's our friend suffer, endure with him, that we may be also glorified together. So another way to read that is that we that we co-endure, that we may be co-glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And I hope that in, in this passage you can see how 
the consistency of the teaching of Philippians, of Second Timothy, and of James are all uh, consistent with this passage. And we expect that the Bible is consistent in its teaching. It is, it is those who wrangle the Scripture to their own destruction, and also yours if you pay attention to them, who will set one Scripture against the other and find it to be contradictory. Our, if we believe that the Scripture is what the Scripture says it is, in fact, the Word of God, if we believe that the Scripture is what it says it is, which is, in fact, God-breathed, then we will understand, though we may not, though we may not know the harmony between two or three or five or twelve verses or whatever our consideration is, we know by faith that there is a harmony between the verses and we'll seek it out until we find it. It may be hidden from us. It's the glory of God to hide a matter. It is the glory of kings to find it out. But God will give it to us. He will, give, he will not withhold his truth unnecessarily from us if we seek it out and show ourselves to be workmen. So here in verse 17, we find that uh, we have the internal witness that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. And that's a fact. Every child of God is an heir of God. We we have uh, an heirship. We have a, 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 an inheritance with God, and that will not be taken away. And that cannot be. We have an we have an inheritance from God. We that that we presently possess, and that we don't have to win, and therefore that we can't lose. But now here is this phrase, and, and, and I don't want to sound too technical, but the way that uh, uh, Romans eight seventeen is written, there, there's a construct in the language here, uh, both words and if children and and joint heirs should, could very easily be read as a, as a, 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 again, as a connecting uh, disconnection, or as on the, it could be read this way, on the one hand, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And on, and if, excuse me, it re, would read this way. On the one hand, if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And on the other hand, joined heirs with Christ, if so be that we co-suffer so that we will be co-glorified. Let me tell you that we'll all be glorified generally, but there will be differences in glory among Christians. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches that very clearly. It says on earth, in the terrestrial, on earth there are differences in glory. Also in the celestial, in the heavenly, there are differences in glory. There will be differences in glory among God's heavenly people. There will be differences in glory among God's earthly people. And it is very possible for you to miss out on the, on the greatest glory that God can give you if you live a, a negligent Christian life. And that's why verse 18, coincident with James chapter 1, verse 12, is so clear then with that understanding. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us in the later time. I mean, it doesn't say in the later time, but the implication there is at that later time. And when is the later time when glory is revealed to the believer? It is the time of the judgment seat of Christ where we will be judged according to that which we have done, and we'll receive either good or evil. You say, well, what is good? Well, the good is obviously the crowns that God offers, the accolade that God offers, just like Abraham received the accolade when he was justified by works, when he offered Isaac up on the altar, 
and so Abraham, uh, so that Abraham believed God and he was justified, and he was called the friend of God. So that is the greater glory, the enhanced glory, the difference in glory beyond a glorified body, which we'll all have in resurrection and rapture. And beyond that, then, we can get the accolade of the Lord Jesus Christ. Commensurate with that accolade is a crown. What is a crown for? A crown is to signify the one who is to reign and to rule. So we find a great consistency in Scripture uh, about that. And, and, and the apostle says, I reckon the sufferings I account, this is reckon, this is faith, with, by faith he reckons this, I account that the sufferings of this present time, this now is the suffering together with the Lord Jesus Christ. The suffering together with the Lord Jesus Christ um, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed. Now, that is exactly the mind that the Lord Jesus Christ had. The Lord Jesus Christ had the mind in Hebrews chapter 12 that says, it didn't say that that because he enjoyed the cross, he endured the cross. It said because of the joy set before him, not before him in geography, what was set before him uh, was a crown of thorns, which was then stuck onto his head. What was set before him uh, was a cruel stake upon which he he was nailed. What was set before him was a was a hard man with a spear that stuck him in his side. Uh, that's what was stuck before him in space. But what was set before his eyes in time was the joy that was set before him. And so the Lord, it says about the Lord Jesus Christ, that let this mind be in you that was in Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now set down. And what? He was glorified. He set down at the right hand of the Father. Now he's glorified. Not unto the angels did he say uh, these wonderful accolades that he gave to the Lord Jesus Christ, but to a man, our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look more at this tomorrow and hopefully finish this series. God bless you for listening, and may these things be brought to your remembrance.